Hello and welcome to the program. My name is Luke Hunt and this is another podcast for The Diplomat and with me is Margaret Bywater who has spent many a decade in Cambodia and has decided to uh, call it a day and head back to Australia. In Cambodia she's extremely prominent for her work in refugee camps, in bringing education to the country when it was a failed state and in particular establishing libraries. Mostly establishing libraries (laughs) and training. And training. Training librarians and teaching researchers how to use, um, first of all, how to use journals, but then when we got the internet. It changed everything. It changed everything, how to use journal databases. And on that note, Margaret, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Take us back to the to the 1980s, Vietnamese occupation, four major warring factions, although they'd splintered and yes. there was a, the country was a failed state, and uh, you were uh, you arrived in the middle of it all. Well, can I start a little bit before sure. that? Because I Absolutely. didn't actually come here cold. Mm. Um, I'd I'd had a long interest in Southeast Asia, going back to primary school years, when um, one of the speakers we had, who was her, the mother of one of the first Australian volunteers to go to Indonesia. Mm-hmm. And this fascinated me. Um, and then when I was in high school, at University High School in Melbourne, some of the first Colombo Plan students were my um, fellow student, right. high school students. So... The Colombo Plan was uh, basically a scholarship program that was established by the Australian government. That's and right. only five years ago, perhaps, it was reintroduced. Yes, well, it started in the middle 50s, and later on I actually did some work with... with um, AVI staff, when it was called Overseas Service Bureau. Everything changes its name over time. (laughs) They reinvent themselves. Yeah, so through libraries I also, you know, I read profusely about Southeast Asia and I remember meeting Bruce Petty, Mm -hmm. who did a wonderful sketchbook of of Southeast Asia and a, um, a tour he made around in the region. Mm, in sometime in the early 60s. Okay. So this was so, your inspiration? So all this, yes, yes, and a lot more too. And so I was working at the State Library part-time and working for Quakers Aid Program part-time. And we began to receive requests from American Quaker Service, AFSC, to assist them providing funds for work they wanted to do in the emergency period in Cambodia and later on after 79, from 79 onwards. Right, once Khmer Rouge had been ousted by the Vietnamese. Yes, because the American government was prohibited, Australia and allies, sorry, American organisations were not allowed to use their own funds. Sure, only the, the because of the Trading with the Enemy Act. Indeed, and uh, uh, Cambodia had been basically saved by the Vietnamese, but uh, they were the wrong stripes given uh, American right. losses during the Vietnam yeah, War. Yeah, that's right. That's right. How did you find Cambodia? I mean, sorry, 
Well, I, that's well, a, you see, I, mean, I know how you found Cambodia, probably on a map, but uh, uh, once you landed, and for a number of years, I was reading reports and helping write proposals, and reading everything I possibly could to get a, a picture of what the situation was in the country. I also knew quite a little bit about Vietnam because I'd worked on projects during the war actually. There was a Quaker group that ran play therapy sessions in orphanages in Saigon and they they also worked in the north as well. So Quakers don't you weren't confined to Cambodia. N- no, no, no. So, but that was earlier. That was earlier in my, um, and I also have um, Vietnamese relatives by marriage. So, a lot of interest in the in the region. So, how did I find it when I first got here? Well, because I'd been working with American Friends Service Committee. I had a really good background on what they were trying to do, and they were trying to work with prosthetics because there were so many amputees. Um, They were working uh, with the Ministry of Health and they were working with education, trying to help rebuild the education system. And that's where Quaker Service Australia came into the picture because, because we had a track record of assisting projects through the Americans and had visited. I was at an annual aid conference in Canberra in 1984 and an officer came up to me and said, would the Quakers be interested in implementing an English language teaching program in Cambodia, well, in Cambodia was what they said. And I said, well, I can't speak for every for the organisation, but so you'll have to ask us. And this was all part of Bill Hayden's approach where because Australia was unable to implement a bilateral program, point, they Hayden then... They then used NGOs to do some of the same work. And that became the foundation of the aid program over later years. Bill Hayden was the uh, foreign minister? Bill Hayden was at the foreign minister at the time. And later on, Mm -hmm. after the 93 elections, Bill Hayden was Governor-General by then. And... He was one of the first non-Eastern European heads of state to visit Cambodia. Okay. Now, how difficult was Cambodia as a country to work in back then? Um, how difficult? Well, there, there were the logistic problems like electricity and water and... Uh, you know, there was a curfew at night from nine o'clock at night till five, five or five thirty in the morning. There was only one flight a day. Oh, sorry, one f- airline, one flight a week from Bangkok, and it went from Bangkok to Saigon. So that was with Air France, and then 
and earlier still it was a, a Red Cross flight. Then you came from Saigon to Phnom Penh, so it took the best part of a day to get here once a week and going out the same. And that was because the Thais would not allow anyone going, uh, Cambodian Airlines, to fly in Thai airspace. It was a different time. I mean, in those days, commercial airlines had to fly around Cambodia. That's right. Because it was a civil war. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it was. But, I mean, this was an actual restriction on, on the Cambodia. Air Cambodia um, was, we flew from... Saigon back to Phnom Penh with Air Cambodia and, and they were old Russian illusions. I remember those planes. Yeah. Uh, Made a terrible racket, but they got you there. Sure, they did. Uh, I remember a few trips where um, my confidence in getting to the destination wasn't always great. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you were going from here, you went down to Saigon and... You had to, and they used the old the airport that had been built by the Americans, but it would been had been built with air conditioning, and there was no air conditioning, so it was a very very hot and uncomfortable wait, and the Air France um, staff would take would take pity on on us both in Bangkok and in Saigon, and we could upgrade it. So if you were lucky, you came back, if you're coming from Bangkok, you came back with a little bottle of French wine. Very nice. <laughs> and having either travelled in, in um, first class or, or, um, or business because there were not many passengers. Sure. But no, I'm talking about 86, 87, 88, yeah. How did you find the Cambodians? Were they welcoming? Did well, have, they were very... Well, Cambodians were still were still recovering, and and they were still very poor, and they were, you know, BKK Bang Bang King Kong, one of the, you know, used to be very exclusive. Suburb it's not, of Phnom Penh, yeah. yeah. It, now it's not quite so. It's all commercial now, mm-hmm. but. The houses there were sort of thatch and bamboo and the stumps from old houses. Yep. So, or, or pe- some people had come back and were able to move into their own homes. But when people, mostly when people came back in 1979, if they were working for a particular ministry, then they were allocated housing around the ministry. So, there were lots of Minister of Education people living around the ministry, which was down uh, Norodom, what we now know as Norodom, um, and Ministry of Interior were up on the other side of town. Um, a bit th- that was because nobody had any transport. So if the you if you had to go to work, you had to walk or ride a bicycle if you were lucky enough to have a bicycle. Sure, and the cyclos would take... Yeah. Um, that's Half right. An hour to go 500 metres, the roads were so bad. Yeah. Well, the cyclo we the cyclos were all employed by the Ministry of Interior, and so they would they would line up outside what is now the Royal, mm-hmm. and we knew it as the Samaki, and 
they would tell you when 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 there was a when a flight had come in when there were Australians on the flight they knew before we did who was coming in so so yeah a lot of if we wanted to go to visit any of our projects we had to make application um, to the foreign ministry and if the security was okay then we would normally be able to go but if there had been fighting or there was anxiety in a particular region we'd have to wait so very few people went to Badenbong until quite into the late 80s and you couldn't go to Kompong Chom because that was you could not drive to Siem Reap no, we're talking about the uh, central and western provinces. Yes, that's right. Sorry. That's right. That's right. But there was a lot of fighting in those areas, and there were, uh, many people stuck in refugee camps. Yes. And you were yes. personally dealing with them. Yes. Well, um, I didn't. I didn't actually visit any of the Thai refugee camps, but I was able to visit. In '89, I visited a refugee camp in Hong Kong, and the refugees there. There were some Cambodians, but they were mostly Vietnamese, and it was there were little whole family living in a little cage cyclone wire cage. Hong Kong was uh, notorious. And I for felt this. I felt really quite disturbed by that. You know, it was. Um, I don't know how long people were, were kept in those places. I'd also, I forget when, sometime in that period in the 80s, visited um, Malaysian camps, and they were all managed very well, I thought. And I know that Australian uh, immigration would go to those camps and interview people because. My brother worked for a number of years out of the High Commission in KL. So it was through some of his contacts that I think that I, uh, that I actually went to visit there. But in some ways, people in camps, although they were constricted, they didn't have to worry about where the food came from. And they didn't, a lot of them were very fortunate to be able to learn English and learn trade skills and things. So. That that difference carried on between people who didn't run to the border and people who who no, settled on the border. That that caused a lot of tension, even the, within families. There's also the prospect that they might get out of those camps and head for a third country like Australia, yes. the United yes. States, Canada. Yes. Well, that was a yes. But I always thought that one of the problems was that because a lot of the West provided food and the ties were making money out of it, encouraged people to go to the border. So, um, but it's all politics. It was all the Cold War being, anyway, I don't want to talk about the politics of it because... Mm. Um, the politics is, is what The politics, dominated. yes. And I think it was the Cold War that made the whole situation of the settlement um, and the eventual peace process drag out for a long, long time. It was many years. Many years. Before they, uh, yes. even with the uh, Paris Peace Accords in Cambodia, 
the arrival of UNTAC in 92 and 93. End of the, 91. Right. Uni, Unimec. Unimec came first, yeah. then UNTAC. Yeah, I was here, so I remember all that. <laughs> well, when you were here. And the war continued until yeah. 1998. Yes, I know. I know. It was, and lives were still being lost. Um, were, were you confronted by the war very much, did you? Um, in the early 90s, I do remember waking up in the morning, and early morning, five or six o'clock in the morning, and you could hear artillery out in Kompong Spur. But you didn't see a lot of military in the same way that you go to somewhere like the Philippines. I was in the Philippines for several months in in 89. And the military, until UNCHAC, you didn't, you didn't see a lot of military but because they were in the border areas. Sure, and the mm. fighting was yes. uh, border areas with Vietnam to yes. a point, but most yeah. of it was yes. up in... Uh, yes along the Thai border particularly. What do you think have been the greatest achievements that uh, Quakers, Australians, yourself can put your hand on your heart and hold your head up high? Ah, well, um, I haven't worked... I've worked from time to time with the Quakers, but I'm very well of all the work that they're doing. And Quakers are only one of... When I first came, there were about 100 people working for NGOs. That's not um, a lot, as opposed to what would come later on. Yes, well, and some, um, <coughs> maybe a hundred is, there were, there, were, there were five NGOs, so maybe a hundred is more later on. Well, as a comparison, I think it was the 2002 telephone oh. book had 52 pages of NGOs in it. Yes, oh, the, that's right, yes. Yeah, well, there, were, so. there was American Friends Service Committee, Mm-hmm. World Vision, SIDSE, which is a, a Catholic consortium from Europe, Oxfam, mm-hmm. and then later on other Oxfams. There was, by later in the 80s, the Australian NGO office, which mm-hmm. was it's Freedom okay. from Hunger. Right. That's okay. Uh, overseas Service Program. Yes. That's fine. Yeah. Um, so from a very small base, mm-hmm. the NGO program grew. In the early days, because there were no Western embassies here, the only non-East Bloc embassy that I can remember was the Indian embassy. So you were very much on your own. Yes. But also the Cambodian... uh, I don't know which what word to use. The government authority. Yes, the government authorities were very keen to include to include NGOs in, and you know there would be maybe one or two foreigners in each office. That relationship would change twenty years later. Well, it did change later, but the people that I knew and worked with back then still remember me, still greet me very, very warmly. So it, it, it was a different kind of atmosphere because we were, in effect, representing the West. And so it was beholden upon us to, to keep certain standards. 
Sure. Yes. So that changed with Uncheck. <laughs> it did indeed. Um, the country was awash with money. It was all there were plenty yeah. of uh, young but, people. But it was an amazing time to be here because you could see how hard people were working to try and make up for what for, make up for the past. It's one of my arguments that uh, back in those days and we'll keep the politics out for a little while. But the West did have a conscience. There were many people in the West who did have a conscience about what had happened in this country. It had been left out, abandoned, mm. and subjected to a civil war. Yes. Uh, which was horrific. A third well, of the they were punished because, because Vietnam, mm. yes, I thought that very much that they were punished. And I think there's a lesson for today from that and that it's so important to keep the channels open with Myanmar mm -hmm. on both sides. The representatives of the government that was elected and the representatives of the military, much harder to negotiate with the military much, much harder. So, so when you think about Myanmar, when you think about Sudan and other places where these kinds of conflicts go on for years and years, and the people who suffer are the ordinary people. The military, well, they lose their lives, but... Some of them. Some of them. Some of them profit. Well, indeed. Well, we saw that here too. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, as a Quaker, I, and even before I became a Quaker, I've, I've been a lifelong pacifist. I grew up during the... I, I remember the end of... I was only three, just over three, when the, the, the Second World War ended, and my father was a pacifist. And so you, you imbibe those kinds of values about that war and what's that quote about war begins in the minds of men and so the way to solve it is using the minds of I forget it's, it's close that's close yeah yes yeah. yeah. people say war war is the byproduct of uh, failed diplomacy yes yeah. well of course you know. and the other one about the first the first casualty in any war is truth, is truth. and that's Yeah, and if we look at the first war and the second war, uh, one of those. Well, the first war was the war to end all worlds, and it certainly it it only yeah. The, then it became World, it, World War One, yeah. World War Two, which was. So, <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm in. Mean, um, I like to think that I'm an optimist, and I like to think that we're Russia yeah. and Ukraine, but, the re-establishment yeah. of the Hunter in Myanmar, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, and the way authoritarian regimes have yeah. um, taken hold over the last five, perhaps even ten years. It's yeah. Uh, yeah. not always a cause for hope. You know, it's so interesting when, when one is here and people criticise how things are done. I um, a number of years ago, I met 
when I was working with Asia Foundation, I met um, an, uh, a, an American who'd been the deputy representative back in the eight, uh, in the 60s and 70s. And he told us that he, in his office, he had a little signboard with his name on it. And on the side where the visitors were, there was his name. And on the side facing him, it said, remember, it's not your country. This is true. It's very true. It's and so anyone who comes here is very privileged to live here. And I really think we learn more from the Cambodians than we're able to. Well, that was one of the issues that I found earlier on, and I arrived much later than you, is that um, so much of Cambodian culture had been obliterated. Now, yeah. I don't know why, but I remember around 10 years ago, women stopped using the... Oh, yes. The, the bowing with the... Well, you pants. still do it, but it's Not much... Not like they used to. And then yes. I remember also around about the same time, people were remarking that Khmer women are singing again. And I'm like, well, what do you mean? And I was like, well, Khmer women were famed for kind of working in the kitchen or working in the fields and breaking out and singing. Yes. And that had been lost for three, four decades. Yes, And yes. It, it kind of rolled back into the culture. It was just something we weren't aware of. Well, uh, there are a lot of changes like that. I think the greeting like this is still very important. Mm -hmm. And it's like in Afghanistan. It's... Hand on the... Hand on the... Yes. Um, just... Cambodian parents do teach their small children to... To bow. Yes. Hands clasped. But the influence of television and social media and means that some of the traditional values, some of the traditional ways of doing things are changing. Um, back in the 80s, they worked very hard at making sure... Uh, reviving dance at, at the Aspera's and yes and I remember very yeah, clearly um, being invited to and how proud Cambodians were being invited to the very first performance of the shadow puppets in the old Mahasrop which burnt down in 1994 so people were very proud because in order to perform with the puppets they had to restore them and they had to find people with the skills who could do that. So I felt very privileged to be in the audience when that, when that first performance took place. So, and that was part of, because we were a small community, we were invited to, whereas perhaps nowadays it would only be, you know, mm -hmm. prominent people. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that, has become, that has become the way. What was, uh, what do you think was the worst moment of your time in Cambodia? Well, the grenade attack. In 1990. Nin in, I can tell you exactly, on the 30th of March 1997. Mm -hmm. And because it happened almost outside our front gate. Because we lived, I lived with a local family and we lived next door, almost next door to the National Assembly. So that was, there, were, there weren't emergency services and 
people were injured. They were badly injured. There were yes. A lot of people were yes. hurt very and, badly that day and, and killed. We hadn't. We had been out. We came home. We had been out for noodles. We came home. And there was a wedding just up the road. And, you, and there was somebody speaking on a soapbox. <laughs> and, and so I thought, <coughs> oh, I'm not leaving the car in the street. I put the car, drove the car in. There's and went inside. By Sam Rainsy, yes. And went inside leader. and yep. went to change into, you know, more informal clothes. And bang, 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 bang. And I, because I lived with the local family, I called everyone in and so did the head of household. And I thought, right, two internal walls away from outside. And they slammed all the shutters and locked everything. And we had no idea. We could hear the screams. We had no idea what had happened. And it was, I think it happened about Oh, sometimes about 8.30 or something in the morning and it was after 10 o'clock in the morning before I managed to listen to Radio Australia news it must have been at 10 o'clock to find out what had happened right outside our, where I was living It was a uh a horrific attack. It would, yes, it was, was a grenade. Yes, is still uh, the it's subject still, of speculation. Yes, yes. Well, um, once we knew what it was, and uh, you know, it was, um, it didn't, didn't, uh, it didn't solve anything. But, but I mean, I think people thought, oh, you know, it's the Khmer Rouge back or something like that. You know, people were. I felt my role was to to be with the family and uh, and just just be cut because I I it was no good me being afraid because Indeed. I was afraid but once I knew what it was and we were able to tell people what had happened we just stayed inside all day. I think once you're exposed to those sorts of uh, situations and fear is a very real issue to deal with but you have to deal with it you have to manage it and you have to get on that's with right it. yes yes and you think about the people around you and the effect on them yes so margaret you're heading back to australia mm. you're a sprightly 80 year old <laughs> i what, hope so the marvelous future if you play your cards right what are you planning on doing well i'm going back to spend more time with my husband instead of making to one or two visits, sometimes three visits in the year. So we haven't seen each other since before COVID. Mm -hmm. I want to re-establish my vegetable garden. Um, I've got a number of tasks that I'll be involved with, with Quakers in publications and in um, an embroidery project where we're creating panels that depict the history of Quakers. So I'm going to be involved in that. I've sung in choirs here, the choir that I was a founding member of in Hobart, 
It's changed its name, but it's still operating 40 years later. Rebranding again. (laughs) So I'm here to go. um, I hope they'll have me back. Um, I'm sure they will. I think singing is a wonderful way of spreading warmth and um, happiness among people. That's a lovely thought. Margaret Bywater, best of luck. Thank you very much for the last 35, 40 years, thereabouts. (laughs) Thank you, Luke. It's um, been a pleasure to share some of this with you and um, I wish you all the best in... We'll carry on. You know, keep the flag flying here. (laughs) Shall do. Margaret Bywater, thank you very much. Oh, thank you.